Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. In the years before the election of the impossible president, Rent Forever, the Very Fabric of Being, the band Radiohead was busy channeling something many of us were feeling, but nobody was really talking about. A kind of ambient, multivalent state of anxiety that seemed to characterize life in the mid to late 90s. Listening to Radiohead was therapeutic. Your own awkward, unpresentable panic somehow dissolved into their sonic ocean, where it was transformed into sexy, transcendent beauty. It felt, uh, empowering? In a New York Times op-ed last week, Ruth Whitman wrote, After a couple of decades of constant advice to, quote, follow our passions and, quote, live our dreams for a certain type of relatively privileged modern freelancer, nothing less than total self-actualization at work now seems enough. But this leaves us with an angsty mismatch between personal expectation and economic reality. Almost everyone I know now has some kind of hustle, whether job, hobby, or side or vanity project. Share my blog post, buy my book, click on my link, follow me on Instagram, visit my Etsy shop, donate to my Kickstarter, crowdfund my heart surgery. It's as though we are all working in Walmart on an endless Black Friday of the soul. Modern anxiety cuts across national borders and social classes, but in America right now, its artisanal flavor is a blend of soaring media-driven dreams and dwindling probabilities of making a living while pursuing them. And nobody's more eloquent or wickedly funny about this reality than Ruth Whitman, the author of America the Anxious. I'm genuinely, sustainably happy that she's here with me today. Welcome to Think Again, Ruth. Well, thank you so much for having me. Is it anxiety-inducing to spend so much time researching and writing about anxiety and also the pursuit of happiness? You know, the funny thing is that the book was about happiness and anxiety. And the bit that was really anxious-making was the happiness part of it, not the anxious part of it. Every time I, I read more about anxiety, it made me feel so much better and so much more a part of the world and you know, so much more validated in my own anxiety. But every time I read about happiness and I, I had to research a lot of happiness studies and positive psychology and a lot about the self-help movement and lots of those types of things. And that was the thing that really started to put me on spilkers, you know, to make me feel that kind of anxiety. One of the points that you make, which I find really important and maybe, maybe is a, a reasonable place to start, and this is toward the end of that book, and we're going to bounce back and forth between the book and the op-ed and, and these ideas because they're all connected in a vast dystopian network. But, um, <laughs> Mess. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But the fact that positive psychology, which is kind of one of the driving forces of the happiness movement in the United States was largely funded in the beginning by grants from the Templeton Foundation, whose yes. progenitor was very much about small government, self-reliance. And so a lot of the studies that got funded and, and therefore the thrust of the movement more generally tended toward the idea of kind of individual self-reliance and responsibility for your own worry and for solving your own problems. Absolutely. I mean, the, I think we sort of, when we hear something as an academic study or, you know, it's got the name uh, Princeton or University of Pennsylvania or Harvard attached to it, you think there's some kind of objectivity. But actually a lot of this is about who gets to set the terms of the debate and who gets to ask the questions. And it's really about the questions you ask that... Uh, leads you to the answers that you end up with. And academic positive psychology is 
deeply conservative in the way that it's framed. What happened was uh, John Templeton Jr., who was a big donor to the Republican Party, to anti-gay marriage causes, to lots and lots of different conservative causes, set up a foundation which on the face of it is apolitical, you know, in the sense of it's not party politically motivated, but it is to, uh, it's to fund academic positive psychology. And so what they did was they funded a lot of studies, which are all about what the individual can do to make themselves happier. So you've probably heard a lot of the results, you know, write a gratitude journal, count your blessings, uh, do mindfulness, all about the individual kind of trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make themselves happy. And they very heavily minimise the role of social action you know, of your life circumstance to your happiness. You know, the idea is that it's an individual choice. It's all about individual effort, which really mirrors this neoliberal kind of view of the world more generally. And benefits, as you point out throughout the book, big companies that are in a position where they're paying workers less and less and they want to be responsible for fewer and fewer benefits and and for worker well-being more generally by just putting the responsibility on the workers uh, or or the blame for their own well-being. Yeah, I mean, if you ever see a corporate happiness seminar, these are huge now, you know, big companies run these mindfulness workshops and they teach you, you know, mindful breathing or happiness techniques and tips. And, you know, these are the same companies that are heavily anti-union often that are cutting back on sick pay, on vacation pay, on all of the things that actually genuinely improve your well-being and shoving it right back onto the workforce. You know, it started off as a kind of fancy thing. If you work for a big fancy company, company like um, Facebook or, you know, other Silicon Valley things or or a management consultancy, then you would go through this kind of happiness training at work. But it's actually trickled down, you know, even workers at Walmart are going through this type of training. You know, it's this idea that, you know, if you just do these 10 things and write in your gratitude journal every night and say your affirmations and think positive, then you'll be happy. And it really has nothing to do with the fact that we've cut all your benefits and your wages and, you know, the rest of it. It's kind of a, a smoke and mirrors thing. I'm like two generations removed from a Talmudic scholar who had to become a cobbler in Philadelphia in order to make ends meet. And then one generation removed from the GI Bill, which enabled my grandfather to become a professor. And then his son becomes a doctor, which is what that generation does. And then my generation growing up in, you know, I was born in 1972, we were very much historically and I guess somewhat economically and economically, definitely, presented with this vision of be who you want to be. And so these values, they're essential to the people of of my generation. I'm sure you included. You used to make films and documentaries and so on. And they are inspiring. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I I feel like I end up writing these things which are all just, you know, pissing all over everybody's happiness. And that isn't really the, the idea. I mean, yes, of course, these visions, and especially in America, I mean, this idea of this land of opportunity and you can be who you want to be and nobody gets to write your story apart from you. You know, those are inspiring messages and they are important to the fabric of society here. And, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater. But I think the emphasis has got very skewed. You know, I think we got to the point where we really believe that everybody can be anything they want to be. And our expectations have become so unrealistic. You know, if you work hard, you get to be a doctor. Is a realistic framing of an ambition. I mean, it's it's certainly ambitious, it's a long way off, it's something, but it's not 
you know, it's not out of the question. But I think what's happening is that genuine opportunity is diminishing, social mobility is diminishing, and we have real problems with the social safety net. But yet our dreams and our ambitions have got ever more overblown. So, you know, we're setting the bar so high for what happiness and success looks like. It's always going to be unachievable. And that's, I think, where the anxiety comes in. I once spoke to the historian Neil Ferguson, who told me that follow your dreams, follow your passion is horrible advice. And he said, you know, (laughs) when I graduated Oxford, I looked around and I said, you know what, Germany is going to become important in the next 10 years. And so I learned German and I did this. And and he was at sort of one more extreme end, I guess, of that spectrum. I guess the question is, you know, as we look at, as we find ourselves kind of increasingly within this vast dystopian structure (laughs) mediated by the kind of scaling of business that's coming out of Silicon Valley and social media and the way that we're having to brand ourselves online. And as we think about, do we have any agency to build a different kind of world uh, going forward? I guess my question is how we make opportunity for people to basically self-realize to the extent that they can professionally and make a living and survive. We are never going to have a problem with people not wanting opportunity, not being ambitious, not having big dreams in America. It's so in the DNA of this country. I think that's not the issue. You know, I I don't think you need to worry that um, suddenly everybody's going to not care that they're not self-actualized or whatever. That's not the problem here. It's funny, you sort of, do you know Maslow's pyramid? You know, this idea that you have a pyramid and on the bottom is the the basics of life, like shelter and and food and whatever. And then you get up to kind of love and belonging. And then right at the top is self-actualization, you know, this tiny little bit at the top of, you know, the hierarchy of human needs. And it's almost like we've kind of turned the pyramid upside down, that we're so fixated on the self-actualization part. We're kind of teetering on this little tiny, I don't know, Maslow's dreidel here, you know, Hanukkah um, reference. <laughs> it's, um, we're forgetting about the basics, you know, the, the shelter, the food, the social safety net, and all of those things that are actually crucial for the self-realization to happen. You can't be self-actualized without those other things. Well, I think the reason for that is probably because we have this sort of Hegelian feeling of the arc of history bending toward self-actualization. We feel like it's, at least in America, we feel like it's our entitlement at this point in history. Like, look, we went through the labor movements before that, the old West, and we're supposed to be there now. And we are to a certain extent, but you know, that this is, the cause of the anxiety. I mean, I think the gig economy in particular, you know, this idea that, you know, you can be your own boss and be the CEO of you and live your dreams in this very self-driven way. I think this is the issue because we haven't really had the conversation properly about how we get all the other stuff, you know, how we work out the social safety net, how we work out how to pay our medical bills and what to do when we're sick and, you know, how to make a living, you know, which are the real conversations that we should be having. We've got this kind of surfeit of self-actualization. So yes, of course, it's important and human beings need that. But I feel like that's not necessarily the conversation that we're lacking in at the moment. You know, you see examples like um, Tim Ferriss is a good example, right? I mean, there's like six people in the world who are (laughs) able to life hack their way to millions or billions of dollars and a cobbled together personal social safety net, as it were. And I think we see these people and, and then the gap between where they are and where we are feels so huge. But what was so fascinating is when I published that article about the gig economy and the 
anxiety of it. You know, I got lots and lots and lots of responses. And some of them were from people who were really barely getting by and they had 10 followers on Twitter and they were, you know, this is not working out for me and this is terrible. And I relate to what you said, which makes sense. But then I was also getting responses from people who had 50,000 followers on Twitter and were working at the New York Times and, you know, had really stellar Uh. careers who were also saying, you've peered into my deep, dark soul and seen what's there. And, you know, so I don't think it necessarily, even when you get to the absolute top of the, the tree, I don't think that anxiety necessarily goes away because the paradigm of constant self actualization be the best, the American dream, this perfect fulfillment is out there. That actually is built into the system that you can never actually get there. So it doesn't really matter how successful you are. The anxiety is still there. And even people in what look like positions of success are often still struggling to get by. Like New York and San Francisco are very expensive places to live. Someone, a reporter for the New York Times, living on his or her salary alone might very well have a difficult time raising children. Absolutely. But yes, to the rest of the world, this person's in an incredibly prestigious um, situation. I mean, there's the financial anxiety, of course, and that's a huge piece of it. But it's also what the money represents. You know, it's it's what's symbolic about the money and the status and whatever. And I think when you set up your definition of success as being something so lofty and so unattainable, then it almost doesn't matter where you get to because you'll still be free. You know, someone was telling me yesterday that Philip Roth always had this anxiety about never having a Nobel Prize. So, I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I mean, the point is that, you know, you can be Philip Roth and you're still worrying that you haven't got enough. So in a way, when I started to hear all that and have these responses from people, it kind of took the heat out of it for me. It kind of made me feel, okay, well, you know, maybe it doesn't matter where I get to because wherever I am, I'll still be miserable. (laughs) So great, you know, let's just enjoy where we are now. You spend a little bit of time in America the Anxious, which I think is called the pursuit of happiness in the UK, right? That's right, yeah. Um, Talking about mindfulness and a lot of the kind of like Buddhist practices that have filtered into, into the happiness industry. A lot of the problem is with the industry part of yeah, the happiness absolutely. industry. Yeah. Yeah, because absolutely. You, you have like ancient practices that are 2000 years old, which were yeah. devised to ha- help people have a more like a less reactive relationship with their own minds. And then you yes. have the idea of like instantaneous happiness yeah. or, yeah, or yeah. sitting there staring at your computer mindfully as if yes. that will suddenly make your job better. Mindful dishwashing, mindful toothbrushing, all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think mindfulness, you know, obviously it's, a 2,000, 3,000 year old practice, which has somehow been kind of rolled into the American kind of self-help machine. And so those are two very different things. I mean, it's funny because actually when I've written about mindfulness, that has been far and away the most controversial thing that I've ever written about, which (laughs) surprises me. I've written about all kinds of things which you would think would be... People are invested, huh? People are so invested. And I wrote this other article a couple of years ago for the New York Times called Actually Let's Not Be in the Moment, which I thought was so... Uh, you know, anodyne and just let's enjoy the imagination, the abstract, as well as the right now, let's enjoy other types of thinking. I wouldn't have thought that was particularly controversial, but I felt like I was nearly chased out of town by a mob of angry Buddhists. I mean, it was just, (laughs) I mean, I got hate mail after this thing. And so people are very, very, very invested in this idea. Those practices, at least as I understand them, the word happiness isn't even really applicable. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right, because I think what's happened is, you know, you get these kind of Silicon Valley Buddha bros who, you know, <laughs> they want this like instant gratification and like mindfulness is 
just another self-help technique to get to that happy ever after this elusive bliss that almost gets quite competitive, you know, in a way, you know, who can reach the most enlightened state. And yeah, and that's obviously a very, very different situation than a Buddhist monk or somebody practicing this as their, as their religion. So the conclusions that you did come to, though, about what actually does make people happy, community, basic yeah. safety net, it was interesting because I started off thinking, actually, there are probably no human universals when it comes to happiness. You know, we're all idiosyncratic and we're all weird and we all like different things and different things make each individual happy. And also the research on happiness is very, very inconsistent. I mean, you can find a happiness study that says pretty much anything is the key to happiness, but also so is the exact opposite of that thing. So, And their happiness research, as we talked about, often ends up revealing more about the agendas of the people funding the studies than it does very much about human beings. But the one thing that is completely consistent across the research, almost I think without exception, is that the foundation of happiness is other people, community, social relationships, you know, different ways of cooperating with other people, which is why this very individualistic paradigm of happiness, this idea that we go and sit in a room on our own and meditate, or we go and, you know, have this very personal journey within reading self-help books, trying to remake ourselves from the inside out, is actually quite counter to, to what the research actually says about what happiness is. And then to take that to a kind of wider point at an individual level, you know, just spend more time with other people is the most the best advice I can give in terms of what will make the individual happy. But then in terms of how we conceive of happiness as a society, if we think of happiness as an individual journey and an individual responsibility, you know, you've got to write in your gratitude journal and read your self-help books and make yourself <laughs> right, happy, right, then that really stands in the way of building a society in which the conditions are there for everybody to thrive and everybody to be happy, you know, with a social safety net, with strong communities, with strong institutions. It also separates people not only physically by having people meditating individually in a room, but in an identity sense, it separates people because every if everyone's on an individual journey to right, discover their, their personal happiness yeah. profile, then we yes. are all alien species to one another. You know, I mean, this phrase that you hear all the time, you know, happiness comes from within. I kind of get where they're going with it. But actually, as a starting point, you really should be looking for happiness outside of yourself, if that's the most effective way to find it from a purely utilitarian point of view. Although, as as you say that, I mean, of course, there are always exceptions to rules. And as you point out in the book, cohorts are not individuals. Yes. And, right. Absolutely. and happiness is often a very subjectively understood concept. But I'm thinking of like small villages and small towns throughout history. I'm thinking of Flannery O'Connor novels. I'm thinking of people in like suffocating, claustrophobic proximity to one another who are very markedly not happy as a result. <laughs> right, that's true, of course, yeah. And so, because, I mean, I think this is the important point that, that, yes, I mean, other people can absolutely drive you completely crazy and make you miserable, of course. And so your lived experience of your own happiness, d definitely it's not a one-for-one -one in terms of, you know, you have more, a stronger community, therefore you're happy, of course not. But it's just a kind of starting point, you know, where we should be looking, really. I mean, at the very least, I think the point about communal responsibility and not divesting us ourselves of concern for the 
well-being of you know our society as a whole right. in terms of the poverty yes. gap and so on like i think yeah. that's crucial absolutely and i think it's also it's not just any community you know go out and find yourself any other people and then you'll be happy i mean it obviously doesn't <laughs> work like that i mean it's got to be the right other people in the right community but i think that our society in the west is moving more and more towards a very kind of individualistic um take on life you know and then this is further exacerbated i think by the kinds of systems that are emerging from Silicon Valley where, no offense, I know you live and your husband works. Yeah, no, no, none taken. <laughs> but, but these sort of mass platformizations of, of everything like yes. Uber and whatever that yeah. are further atomizing and, and, and separating yeah. people. And the rhetoric around it is so different from the reality. I mean, there's such a big gap because, you know, Facebook, the whole thing is about connection and coming together but actually technology isolates us in many ways and especially social media I think has quite peculiar effects on our psyches in terms of connection. And then this brings us back to the the salient point which is that at the same time on those in within those very systems we have additional pressure to appear perfect and happy yes. and organized to one another yeah. which fuels anxiety. And I think that's particularly true in the United States. I mean I'm from England and we have a different take on this, you know, people it's almost sort of slightly suspect to walk around being too happy <laughs> or looking too happy. But um, here positivity is very very highly prized and so you know it's these positive affirmations think positive look happy be cheerful and you know it's nice it's nice to be around but it does put an expectation on people you know it's quite hard for people to be emotionally honest I think in America that's probably more so on your coast than on mine on although we feel it we feel it here too and especially on social media but in New York I think the pressure is more along the lines of appearing sedulous sedulous right great word yeah you know (laughs) You're yeah. you're working your ass off at all right, times. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Productivity is the highest human, the pinnacle of human uh, activity. I know it's so funny, like the way people are obsessed with productivity here, aren't they? It's you know, it's almost like you see these articles where they're like, take a day off because it will make you more productive. Like the only way people can understand leisure is as a productivity hack. You know, it's amazing. I, I think okay, like if I'm an individual artist and my I'm making my own art and my productivity concern is about I've only got X number of years to live and I I have something I need to say, then fine. But like otherwise you're just transforming your you know, taking on a mantra that makes you a tool of whatever company you work for. You know, absolutely. Right. But which comes back to the whole thing we were talking about before, which is like these companies put across this narrative that your whole self is wrapped up in work, your happiness, you know, your emotions, your mindfulness, your it's a real kind of blurring of the lines between work and self. And that means that I think they can actually can work you much harder because if your identity is so wrapped up in your company's success, then it's perfect way for them to kind of crack the whip. I think this is a good place, a nice segue for us to go to the second part of the show, which is sort sure. of a, ra- a random jump. But yeah. as they say in your your home country, now for something completely different, um, <laughs> we'll watch surprise video clips. And this okay. is for the audience. I'm letting them know that these are from Big Think's video interview archives, and they're chosen by our producers. Uh, I have not watched them in advance, neither has Ruth. And we're going to watch the first one and, uh, and see where the conversation goes from there. Great. 
This is Jonathan Haidt, who is a writer and cultural critic. And the clip is called How Overparenting Backfired on Americans. American parenting really changed in the 1990s. When I've, I'm talking about the book, I go around the country, I ask audiences, at what age were you let out? At what age could you go outside and play with your friends with no adult supervising? And I say, only people over 40. What's your answer? Call it out. And it's five, seven, eight, six, five, seven. It's always five to eight. That's what we always did. Between five and eight, kids could go outside without an adult. They'd get in arguments, they would, they would play games, they would make rules. Um, they were independent. They got years and years of practicing independence. Then I say, just people under 25, what year were you let out? 12, 14, 13, 16. Nobody says 10 or younger. In the 1990s, as the crime rate was plummeting, as American life was getting safer and safer, Americans freaked out and thought that if they take their eyes off their children, the children will be abducted. Now this goes back, the fear was stoked by cable TV in the 1980s, there were a few high profile abductions. But it's not until the 1990s that we really start locking kids up and saying you cannot be outside until you're 14 or 15. We took this essential period of childhood from about eight to 12 when kids throughout history have practiced independence, have gotten into adventures, have made rafts and floated down the Mississippi River. We took that period and said, you don't get to practice independence until it's too late, until that period is over. Now, a couple years before you go to college, now you can go outside, oh, okay, go off to college, and a lot of them are not ready. They're just not used to being independent. When they get to college, they need more help. They're asking adults for more help. Protect me from this. Punish him for saying that. Protect me from that book. There's a very sharp change with kids who were born in 1995 and afterwards, surprisingly sharp. Uh, Jean Twenge, in her book iGen, uh, analyzes uh, surveys of behavior of, of time use. And beginning with kids born in 1995, they spend a, a, a lot less time going out with friends. They don't get a driver's license as often. They don't drink as much. They don't go out on dates. They don't work for money as much. What are they doing? They're spending a lot more time sitting on their beds with their devices, interacting that way. These are the first kids who got social media when they were 13, roughly. They were subjected to much more anti-bullying content in their schools, uh, much more adult supervision. Um, they were raised in the years after 9-11. Uh, they were they were given much less recess and free play with no child left behind. There was much more testing pushed down into earlier grades. We don't know if this is for sure the reason, but they seem to have more difficulty working out problems on their own. The most common thing I hear uh, is that members of Gen Z, if they overhear a joke, if they overhear someone say something, they'll, they'll get offended and then they'll go straight to HR. They go straight to somebody to file a complaint where previous generations would have either just shaken it off and just said, you know, jerk or asshole or whatever, I think there are a couple things we can say. One is, is you have to take charge of device use and social media. We don't know for sure, but it looks like a two hour limit per day is probably a good idea. Keeping kids off of social media as long as possible is a good idea. It's very hard to do this as one parent when your kid's friends are not limited. So you've got to talk to your kids' friends and all have a common front, all have a common policy, then go to the schools. Schools can solve these problems collectively in ways that individual parents cannot. Outside of school, go to letgrow.org, an organization, a wonderful new organization, started by Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book Free Range Kids. 
She became famous as America's worst mom because in 2009, she let her nine-year-old son ride the New York City subway. Not only did he survive, he was thrilled. He felt he'd learned something. He felt he could go out into the world. Give childhood back to kids so that they do what they most need to do, which is develop the skills of being an independent adult. Remember that the job of a parent is to work him or herself out of a job. Okay, so I was absolutely 100% with him until the part when he said about going to HR. You know, I wrote a chapter in America the Anxious all about parenting as well and covered many of the same points, which is that parents now have this view that they can kind of build a perfectly happy child. I mean, Jonathan Haidt talked about safety, but there's also this kind of parallel idea about happiness, which is parents now have this view that by putting in enough effort and enough parenting and doing enough parenting work, they can kind of build this perfectly happy child. And that's a big part of this coddling that he's talking about, you know, that if we keep everything perfect, you know, in the in the book, I use the analogy, you know, it's like the queen thinks the world smells of fresh paint because everywhere right, she goes, right, everyone right. always paints before she arrives. And that's kind of like modern childhood, that the parent sort of walks in front of the child and scattering rose petals and painting everything and making sure that everything's perfect and taking obstacles out of the way of the child, creating magic and memories and all the rest of it in a way that our parents absolutely would not have done. No. And I mean, it's hard to prove complete causation in anything to do with parenting, but I think there is a big rise in, you know, mental health problems, lack of resilience, uh, depression, anxiety in college students, which I think most experts agree has got something to do with this fact that, you know, we've kind of removed all negative emotions, all um, negative experiences from our children. And we don't give them a chance to experience independence and resilience. So I was 100% with Jonathan Hay until he got to the bit about HR. And then I kind of bristled where he said, Gen Z, you know, or, today's yeah. Gen Z, they'll, they'll overhear a joke or something in the workplace and then they'll go straight, they'll feel offended and they'll go straight to HR. Now, I've got to stand up for millennials and Gen Z here in the fact that these were people who have, you know, with the Me Too movement, um, which I guess was not started by a millennial, but they're people who've really run with it. This idea that we took sexual harassment in the workplace as completely standard. I used to work for a large media organization and sexual harassment, as we would define it now, was completely the norm. You know, and often what we would now define as sexual assault. I was a researcher, then later a producer, and researchers would sort of talk to each other and don't get in the elevator with that man and everybody knows that this guy is going to... We won't name that organization, but I think we can say that it's British and that Benny Hill is probably responsible for that that culture. This is maybe a bit of a diversion for you. Sorry. (laughs) There was this unbelievable scandal where pretty much everybody who was on you know children's tv in the 1980s is now in prison in yes, the uk yes. for sexual. so you know this is stuff which we saw as normal and especially as well and this was a power dynamic let's not get this wrong this is not to do with overparenting. this was a power dynamic between men and women this was a gender issue and this right. was about power in the workplace and so the fact that these so-called kind of coddled teenagers are actually standing up for this and saying, hang on a second, this is not acceptable. I am going to HR. It's not okay to make a sexist joke or a racist joke or to, and this was the thing. I mean, it's kind of the tyranny of the joke in a way. And I love jokes. Don't get me wrong. Jokes, you know, are my friend. But 
there's this, and especially maybe in British culture, uh, where humour is incredibly highly prized, you know, humour is power, you know, and who gets to be funny? And we make an offensive joke in the workplace. And then the person who is offended is the one called out for being humourless. And the person in power who's making that joke, which is completely unacceptable, right, is, right. is not. And so, right, you know, this right. I don't want to m- meld those two things together in a way. Uh, even though this is sort of a digression, because I think yeah. it's really interesting. I want to link this to something that last week's guest, Wesley Yang, he was talking about. He definitely leans in the Jonathan Haidt political direction on this stuff. And so his argument was that at this moment, liberalism has no defense against any claim of egalitarian entitlement. So that is to say, you know, all those power reversals that are ne- necessary to happen, you know, the m- men's abuse of of women, racism, and so on. His, I guess, concern, which may be hysterical, may be overblown, I don't know, is that you may have a generation rising where your own personal individual feelings and interpretations of discomfort, whether or not they are necessarily linked to any larger social problem become the barometer by which we measure what is acceptable and what is not. So I think the right loves this narrative of the liberal snowflake. You know, there's a college student who needs a trigger warning for every book and needs a safe space. And, And it reminds me, I don't know if the phrase was so popular here, but when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, everyone talked about political correctness gone mad. You know, right, right, so right. political correctness gone mad. And right. the tabloid press would get hold of these stories and it would be crazy example of Muslim trying to get in, you know, trying to remake British society. So, you know, and what they were really doing was defending bigotry. And the political correctness gone mad thing was a narrative that really silenced the powerless and defended bigotry. I haven't spent a lot of time in college environments, so it's hard for me to say firsthand what is going on here. And I think it's very easy for us to get a narrative which is written by other people for us. And I think the right love this thing, you know, and there, you know, there was a really interesting article by the Dean of UC Berkeley where he was writing about that they were trying to get, they were trying to get some extreme right-wing speaker to talk. They went out of their way to find every way to make this possible. You know, they, they gave multiple dates, multiple locations, and this speaker's team insisted on all of these ridiculous conditions just so that this thing would fall apart and then they then they could say, you know, they've no platform to us, they have not given us, you know, it, it's sure. a freedom of speech issue, these liberal snowflakes can't cope. And so I'm suspicious of this narrative a little bit. I am very much so too. I just, yeah. and I and I know that these conversations end up in binaries, but yes. I, I, I guess the fact that something fits into a narrative that might become a binary doesn't necessarily make it untrue. It and doesn't I, mean it's yeah, not true. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure there is, I'm sure there's truth in this. And I think this overparenting thing is a huge issue. I think there is an issue with resilience. I don't know how much it plays into the freedom of speech issue. I would rather we hypercorrected, you know, I'd rather we overcorrected to <laughs> favor the powerless than maintain positions of power for people who have had them for too long. I'd rather have a bit of snowflake than a bit of bigotry. One can politicize anything, but I'd be surprised if we can politicize this. It's by Lucy Cook, and it seems to have something to do with dead penguin sex, and it is called <laughs> The Danger of Anthropomorphizing. I need anthropomorphi- a trigger warning for this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called The Danger of Anthropomorphizing Animals. Dead penguin sex. You've made my day. <laughs> so I think that a lot of... Um, 
I think a lot of popular natural history likes to portray the animal kingdom in very human terms. And, and also stories that are popular seem to be ones where animals are behaving like us. Um, they're providing us with some kind of reassurance in some way. Um, you know, animals on television, you know, tend to have um, nice nuclear family setups. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I think that what's sort of fascinating to me is that this sort of desire to see animals behaving in a, an, a nice moral uh, Christian family values even uh, way is something that we've been propagating for millennia. I mean, actually, it, it can be traced all the way back to the, um, the beastries, the medieval beastries, which were the very first animal encyclopedias, if you like. Um, and these books were written by religious scribes and they all copied one book, which was called the Physiologus, which was uh, actually the naturalist is, is, is what that translated as. And that was written in the sort of fourth century. And what they, what these books, what the Physiologus did is it, it popularized uh, natural history and it took it to the masses and it became a massive bestseller. I think it was second only to the Bible, hugely popular. And it, but what, but what the Physiologus and the, and the Beasteries did was to look for moral tales within animal behavior. They weren't interested in trying to tell the truth about animals or enlighten their audience about animal behavior or, or even the, the, the animal kingdom. They wanted to use, they believed that God had implanted moral lessons in animals to teach us. And so the stories that they told about animals, which were hugely popular, were all very moral. They were animals were good or they were bad. Um, and they, they taught us lessons about what's sinful and what isn't. And I think that to a certain extent, we still do that today. We, we are still peddling these same myths to a very large extent. Um, you know, uh, popular press and newspapers, they love to tell stories about how you know, there was something the other day that went viral about a stork that was re returning to its partner after many years and showing this 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 love affair. And we we, we love to see these sort of heroic or, or or very kind of Christian stories being told in um, in popular popular zoological stories in the papers or or even um, on television. I think the risk of anthropomorphizing animals in this way is that we just will fail to understand them. We won't appreciate them on their own terms for what they are. To paint the animal kingdom with a, with a Christian moral brush is to deny it in its, all of its sort of sibling eating, um, you know, blood sucking, corpse shagging glory, you know. And, and the thing is, is we, we, we shouldn't be afraid of animals to behave as they do in these uh, ways that are, are maybe even morally repugnant to us, they're not there to teach us a lesson. They're just there to live their lives. If we want moral guidance, we should be looking inside of ourselves for that. We shouldn't be looking to a penguin, for example, to tell us how to teach our lives. Now, but you're probably thinking, oh, penguins are really cute and they're monogamous and they mate for life. 
Well, actually, um, that's not true either. Penguins are birds with small brains that live in a very brutal environment. They have a short window in which to reproduce, and so they're flooded with hormones. And the males, particularly the Adelie penguin, which is your, your classic little black and white penguin, the males are pumped full of hormones, and so they'll basically have sex with anything that moves and quite a few things that don't move. I know you said that this could not turn political, but actually what sprung to mind really was kind of political, that there is this narrative Mm. around natural and unnatural, which is very much shoved into a kind of, as she said, you know, kind of Christian moral perspective, you know, which is used to justify all kinds of things like no gay marriage or gay relationships. Um, You know, you see it a lot in the parenting community around things like breastfeeding, which gets into this huge, extremely small people political debates you know or you know attachment parenting which are all justified because they're natural and because animals do it you know rather than taking a view on human morality that natural naturalism narrative can be used on either side of the political spectrum right, it can also be used yeah. to justify yeah as you say like yeah. no gay marriage or yeah. or attachment parenting right absolutely or you know you saw it with the google engineer recently who was saying you know the reason why there's fewer women working in tech is because they are naturally more this you know a natural becomes a, a synonym for good if it's natural it's good even whether whether or not it is actually natural is <laughs> another question and whether it is or not you know lots of things are natural you know cancer is natural rape is natural you know i mean these are not things that we actually want to to encourage yeah and and most everything humans do is by some measure unnatural in the sense that right. it's filtered through our conceptual imagination and right, words and culture and all these yeah other and people things. are happy to have a debate about what's natural and unnatural <laughs> yeah, over yeah. skype you know which is not exactly <laughs> natural you know i mean hey let's not pick and choose here the other thing i thought about though is we didn't have to tie this back to your work but it actually very much does i mean i was thinking about there are lots of different stories that we can tell like so with animals you have the spectrum from they are cute and they are cuddly to they are rapacious procreation driven creatures we can do the same with ourselves you can say present a hobbesian dog-eat-dog view of humanity and say that what we are is competitive and nasty and that all of our behaviors, including what looks like love, are actually manipulative and selfish, right? Or you can tell a very sanitized narrative, which is what certainly a lot of us are trying to present on social media. I suppose we're living in a world now where we curate our own stories more than we ever have before and you know it's about especially as you say social media is about presenting an image and drawing a narrative out of out of the dust as to to who you are that's not necessarily a bad thing I mean stories are important you know I I think we can't really live without stories I mean that's what makes us human you know assigning meaning to random events is what allows us to work in groups to drive to have jobs to you know you, you can't function without stories but I think that yes it is easy for these things to become manipulative something you point out in the book which I think is is really important is that the that you know when when we get trapped in a sort of sanitized version of our lives, whether because the workplace is coercively demanding positivity right. all the time or because we're demanding of, a, of ourselves on, on Instagram or competing with one another that way, when we 
cut off the complexity of actual, like the ups and downs of our moods from ourselves. That's, that can be very, very harmful and cause a great deal of suffering. Yeah, that's a really, really important point, actually, because I suppose what what you're saying is kind of we turn penguins into Beatrix Potter and narratives and we do the same thing with us that, you know, we want this very cutesy, very um, sanitized narrative where positivity is everything that we don't really engage with the complexity of human emotions. And it's impossible to be psychologically healthy without embracing a range of emotions. You know, we can't just have the good without the bad. It, it doesn't work. Getting in touch with the full range of your emotions yeah. and connecting about that with other people is very un-British, terrifying very notion un to British people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we've got different issues. You know, I think we, we have, I mean, the positivity is not our problem, you know, but yeah, perhaps being emotionally reserved is our problem. Well, I mean, I know when you end on penguin rape, it's quite hard to get back, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, where do we go from penguin rape? Yeah, I, I, know, really, I, really, I really don't know. <laughs> That's the top of the pyramid. Given this, the complexity and the confusingness of our society right now, that's as appropriate a place as, as any, any to end this conversation. <laughs> um, Ruth Whitman, I so much enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you for your writing, which is, to my mind, really on point. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. And that is the end of our episode. And that is the first time ever that I've read an article and been moved immediately to reach out to its author. And boy, am I glad I did. We have two more very different episodes coming your way. One on the science of empathy and one on UFOs before I take two weeks off to read a bunch of books in preparation for what is shaping up to be a devastatingly cool 2019 on Think Again. Please rate or review us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen, and I hope you can join us again next week. <laughs>